This evening I'd like to talk about the richness of aloneness. Mystics in every tradition and in every time have spoken of the value of being alone, have spoken of the richness discovered in exploring what it means to be alone. Times what is spoken of is the joy, the rapture experienced in aloneness. Times what is also spoken of is the deep bonding and the deep connectedness that is also born of understanding the depths, the true depths of being alone. The mystics too speak of the richness of contemplation the transformation that is born of contemplation, a contemplation that is frequently, most frequently, undertaken in solitude. It's not always easy. In fact, it is often difficult for us to regard aloneness as being an experience which is pregnant with richness and pregnant with possibility. We are in our lives all too often shattered by the possibility of aloneness and come to regard it with a sense of anxiety and apprehension. We do that because at many times in our lives the aloneness that we has that we have experienced has been rooted in fear. And so the very possibility of experience being truly experiencing being truly alone at times fills us again with fear, with a sense of being appalled at its possibility. In many ways we learn to regard being alone as a vacuum, a kind of black hole inwardly, a feeling of deprivation. And we come in that way of seeing. We learn to equate aloneness with separation and with alienation. I think for women particularly, aloneness is an experience that carries particularly in negative associations. Suddenly we have in our culture a very long tradition of bachelors and it's a tradition that is at times regarded with a certain amount of esteem and admiration it has all of these associations of a, a life of freedom, a life of being unencumbered, un- unburdened, a life of excitement. Women don't have that tradition at all. For a woman to be alone, she's often regarded with a certain sense of pity, at times with a certain suspicion. Even the words that are used to describe a woman alone carry terribly negative connotations. You've been left on the shelf. You may only be 32, but you're an old maid. You're a spinster. And sometimes it's a woman alone is regarded as someone who has something amiss, something wrong in her life or in herself. And of course, many people, other people, find themselves dealing with the discomfort 
of a woman without a companion because she is difficult to define. She is difficult to compartmentalize into a particular role or identity and so frequently regarded with suspicion. And I feel there is an underlying assumption that is born in our culture that a woman alone is somehow a woman incomplete who has either lost something or else is looking for something. And part of that assumption, I feel, is, is the, also the association that a woman simply cannot be happy alone. That she needs something else, a role, an identity, or a person to define her. On different levels, I feel, in our own being, we do also absorb these associations and these messages in conscious and in unconscious ways. Women, men also absorb these conclusions that aloneness is a negative experience. And so because of our absorption and adoption of those kind of beliefs, we many times find ourselves uncomfortable in aloneness, experiencing a sense of incompleteness in that, we learn to regard being alone with fear and with anxiety because part of that assumption is equating aloneness with loneliness, with separation and with disconnection. If we look at our lives and look within ourselves, we can clearly see the destructive effects of absorbing those messages and absorbing those beliefs. We become consumer addicts of input, of contact, of superficial levels of connection. We become contact addicts, desiring to be in contact to consume at almost any price because we feel that through consuming input, through consuming contact, we are somehow it's been made possible for us to fill up a a belief in an emptiness within ourselves, that there is emptiness within ourselves. And out of that need for contact, out of that constant consuming of input, we find ourselves frequently in positions and in roles of dependency upon identities, upon roles, upon belief systems, upon images, because they, we rely upon them to give us a sense of who we are. We also find ourselves almost desperately seeking completion in sanctuary, in the sanctuary of those identities and the protection of those roles. And part of that desperation is the desperation to rid ourselves of being alone. And yet in that constant seeking for completion outside of ourselves, what we actually do is further accentuate and further reinforce an alienation from our own being. We banish ourselves, exile ourselves from a true sense of inner completeness. We banish ourselves from understanding 
the richness and the depth of what aloneness actually means to us. So focused outside of ourselves, alienated inwardly, we also become very self-conscious in our relationships with other people, with the world around us. Because we know that we approach, it, approach those relationships with a sense of need, a yearning to be filled up, a yearning to be completed. And we look upon relationship then as a way to solve a problem. And the problem that we're trying to solve through contact, through consuming, through dependency, is the problem that we perceive aloneness to be. In that outer focus, we don't anymore know how to be comfortable in ourselves. We don't anymore know the value of inner solitude. And the aloneness we do tend to experience, we experience it in a very superficial way. The very mechanisms that we use to protect ourselves from aloneness, from the fear that is associated with aloneness, the mechanisms of finding sanctuary and roles in dependency and finding sanctuary in belief systems, all of those mechanisms we engage in in order to protect ourselves from fear, and yet in such a real way those very mechanisms only serve to exaggerate that sense of fear inwardly because we become increasingly afraid of separation. We increasingly perceive ourselves in a way in which we feel that we are devastated by aloneness, that we will be devastated by rejection or by loss. There are people who do not regard being alone as a negative experience or as an uncomfortable experience. There are people who regard aloneness as being a very attractive place to be. You meet people who come on retreat and they say, oh, what a relief it is to be here. I don't have to communicate with anyone. I don't have to speak to anyone. I don't have to listen to anyone. You see, I really, really don't enjoy people all that much. And it's such a relief to not anymore have the burden of relationship. And yet so often that kind of aloneness or the seeking for that kind of aloneness is usually experienced by those who have been damaged and wounded by relationship. And what is being sought in that aloneness is to avoid pain. But it's not a true aloneness that's being experienced. Instead, what is being experienced is isolation and withdrawal. And that isolation and withdrawal is not rich in possibilities. Rather, it is a state of poverty. The poverty of disconnection. The poverty of separation. The poverty of a lack of connectedness. And it's much fear in that. That kind of withdrawal, aloneness, is used as a kind of defense and although it's a painful defense, it's certainly painful to experience disconnection in any way, that pain somehow feels easier to cope with, easier to bear than the pain that is perceived as being inherent in relationship, the pain that is projected onto, the, onto connection and relationship. There are rare people those rare and blessed people 
who feel comfortable in a true sense of aloneness and who can deeply appreciate its richness, who know a quality of aloneness which is in no way opposite or polarized from connectedness, but who know in their aloneness a deep, deep integrated sense of bonding, of oneness with all of life. That ease in aloneness is the ease of inner security. It's the ease of inner trust, where we don't need anymore to define ourselves by people, by contact. In that aloneness, there is also a constant sense of relatedness. There's an underlying sense of connectedness in that relatedness. The oneness that is experienced inwardly through that trust and that inner security is a oneness that is reflected in the oneness that is experienced with all of life. And that deep inner security, that deep inner trust, means no longer demanding or needing proof of relatedness or signs of affirmation or signs of acceptance from outside of ourselves. In that trust, too, there is not any longer a sense of being devastated by a lack of approval, by a lack of affirmation. In that security, there is neither the fear of connectedness nor is there the fear of aloneness. Rather, that security brings about a true sense of openness, of vulnerability, of receptivity, and a deep inner willingness to explore the potential of aloneness, to explore the depths of aloneness. In meditation, I feel, in coming to meditation, we come and continue in this path because at different times in our lives and in our experience, we have glimpses, real intuitive glimpses, of the importance of understanding what aloneness is all about. We have sufficient trust in ourselves to let go of so many of the props in our lives, so many of the definitions in our lives, and be willing to enter in to this exploration of aloneness. We know deeply within, it, within ourselves that many of the most important tasks we undertake in our lives, we undertake alone. We know that some of the deepest learning that we do in our lives, some of the deepest wisdom that we need to develop, we also do alone. We do it within ourselves. We know, too, intuitively, that there is no one outside of ourselves who can present us with peace, with serenity, with freedom. There is no one outside of ourselves, there is no one but ourselves, who can explore the reality and, the, and, the, and explore the insubstantiality of limitations we experience, of restrictions that we experience. We know that there is no one else who experiences life in exactly the same way that we do. We know that there isn't anyone outside of ourselves who can actually, for us, resolve conflict, give us resolution, give us freedom. 
we know that this is part of our own inner opening, our own inner seeing. We know too that we need to understand our own fears, that no one is qualified to tell us who we should be, what we should become, how we should present ourselves. All of that insight, all of that development, all of that nurturing takes place within ourselves. We are supported, clearly. We are supported in that exploration. And yet it is a real quest that takes place in inner solitude. Sometimes that's a scary place to be. We feel, oh, there is no one to rely on. There are no models. There are no sure voices. There is nowhere to turn outside of myself. Sometimes we have doubts about our own capacity to deepen inwardly, to undertake this journey inwardly, to bring about our inner wisdom in our aloneness. And yet, on another level, I feel there is trust because we know, essentially, there is nowhere to go. And there is a falseness in adopting the beliefs and the models of others. And we know intuitively that wisdom is born within ourselves. It emerges from within ourselves, as does our compassion, as does our empowerment, as does our effectiveness in the world. And we know and we are inspired to turn inwardly because I feel we also understand intuitively that in understanding our aloneness, in understanding our inner completeness, in understanding the depths of inner connectedness, that in that understanding also lies our transformation and also lies our freedom. When we speak of exploring the richness of aloneness, we're speaking of a much deeper level of aloneness than just physical solitude. We are speaking much more than just a geographical aloneness or a physical withdrawal from others. True aloneness, I feel, is not a physical location. It is not dependent upon whether we are with, in the presence of others, or not in the presence of others. True aloneness, I feel, is a location of our consciousness. It's where we rest. It is a place of abiding. In a way, it's a place of abiding where we do not define ourselves by anything, by anyone, inwardly or outwardly. Where we do not rest for definition anywhere or upon any object, material or physical or psychological or emotional. Aloneness is a dimension of consciousness which is not limited by definition, which is not limited by description. It's a non-abiding, a non-abiding in a very real way, in any level of personal description. In that aloneness, I feel, is an expression of freedom and expression of connectedness. True aloneness is that quality of consciousness, that quality of wisdom inwardly, where we don't depend upon or define ourselves by any prop, physical, material, or psychological. Nor are we, in that inner awareness, in that inner seeing, 
unconsciously molded by conditioning, unconsciously molded by input, nor consciously seeking definition through feedback or through input. Aloneness is not a denial of relationship. It's not a denial of connectedness. Rather, it's a quality of oneness, inwardly and outwardly. True aloneness, I feel, comes and is born of a cessation of clinging, a cessation of identification. It's a cessation of limitation. The Buddha was once asked what aloneness really was, what it was meant by aloneness. And he said, in being able to let go of what has gone by, in clinging not to what is present, in longing not for what has yet to come, in that quality of freedom, in the absence of clinging, there is experienced a true aloneness. What is being spoken of is not physical solitude. What is being spoken of is an inner openness where there is a deep, deep freedom experienced in the cessation of clinging. That clinging, it's a cessation of clinging to personal history, it's a cessation of clinging to present experience, it's a cessation of clinging to the unknown and to the future. That cessation of clinging does not involve disconnection. It's too easily associated with disconnection. You know, sometimes so much is spoken about renunciation, but at times renunciation is very attractive to us. It's not difficult for us to renounce the world when our world is filled with pain. In fact, we become one of the strongest advocates of aloneness when we've just come out of a painful relationship. That's when we praise the virtues of aloneness. It's not difficult to withdraw from the world when our world is filled with pressure, when our world feels to be filled with disharmony or discontent. Then we seek for aloneness. Far more difficult for us is to renounce clinging far more difficult for us is to see the cessation of clinging to personal history and to the present and to the future. The one thing that we cannot divorce ourselves from in our lives is the quality of our inner being, the quality of our own consciousness, whether we're alone or whether we're with others. The quality of our inner being is our constant companion in life. And when clinging when holding, when identification is our companion, it makes our inner being a very heavy friend, a very heavy companion to live with. We have a personal history. We look back in the past and we see this accumulation of experiences and impressions and we see that this is what we call our personal history. 
and we see that that personal history is carried into this moment. It influences how we experience this moment. It influences how we see ourselves in this moment. Our past and our personal history is superimposed upon this moment that we experience now. And that very influencing means that our personal history and our past experience is also carried into the next moment. And the next moment, the very next moment from the one you are experiencing right now is the future. And we see this seeming continuity, this process of continuity between past and present and future. And they seem one long process of continuity, of being bound together, of all of time being bound together by that continuity. And it feels so substantial. And because we see that continuity, we have so much deep belief in time, in notions of progress, and in notions of evolvement. And yet all of our notions of continuity, all of our ideas about continuity, all of our beliefs in continuity rest upon clinging. And true aloneness is the cessation of that clinging. It's a cessation which means that we are no longer the owner of personal history. It's a cessation of clinging which means that we no longer experience limitation in the present moment. It's a cessation of clinging which allows the future to unfold, to remain an unknown. When we look inwardly, when we see our minds, we see that our minds are in a constant state of movement. The constant arising and passing of thoughts and of images and of memories and opinions and beliefs. We see that when that movement is rooted in inner alienation, the form that movement takes, the form that the movement in our mind takes, is the form of reaching towards things or away from things. When there is discontent within, the mind, the very movement of the mind, is a state of reaching. It's a reaching towards something, to get something. It's a reaching away from what we're actually experiencing to get rid of it. The mind in that movement, it it reaches towards thought, it reaches towards the past, it reaches towards the present, and it reaches towards the future. It reaches towards objects and it reaches towards sensation and it reaches towards contact. That very movement of reaching is the movement of our inner being which is seeking for self-definition. It's seeking for a sense of identity. It's seeking for a role to rest upon. We can see that the very notion of who we are in any given moment feeds upon movement and it feeds upon activity. You cannot find a sense of I alone. It is always seeking for a companion. It is always I am, I was, I will be, I have, I will become, I want, I need. You look for a sense of I in stillness. It's not there. You look for a sense of I in the cessation of clinging. It's not there. 
It is always resting upon a companion and needing a definition. Through that finding a companion to meet, whether it's in time or whether it's an object or whether it's a thought, we gain a sense of self-definition. And so often our sense of self-definition relies upon the relationship we're experiencing in that moment. In that relationship, we can see that this sense of who I am gains credentials. It gains a qualification. We can say, I am, I have, I will be, I used to be. It is no surprise, it is no surprise at all that we find aloneness threatening in this experience. It's no surprise alone at all that we find ourselves almost panicking in the aloneness that we do experience, that we experience anxiety, that we experience the endless movement of occupation and resistance. Because that occupation and resistance gives us definition and we need that definition because we fear that there is emptiness or nothingness in the absence of definition. It is why we find it difficult to be still. It's why we find ourselves engaged in these very busy conversations within ourselves. Why we find the endless dialogues and the monologues and the the occupations and the fantasies and the speculations. None of that is imposed upon us. No one sits down with the intention to be lost in fantasy, to be lost in occupation. No one even particularly enjoys it. And yet you wonder what it is that compels, that propels this busyness, this movement away from ourselves, this need for occupation, this need for involvement. It is the desperate yearning of self. It is the desperate yearning of this sense of self seeking to be something afraid of being nothing, afraid of being without a definition. The emphasis in meditation practice is in living, being present, truly being present in this moment. Because on one level we can see that this moment that we're experiencing is the link between past and future. We see that this moment that we're experiencing offers us a possibility to be aware and so it also seems obvious that this present moment offers us a possibility of understanding and awakening and transformation. And yet sometimes being in the present moment is put upon a pedestal. It's somehow seen to be the consummation of meditation that all you need to do is be here now. You know, you hear the endless cliches, you know, that if you're really meditating, you're just being here now and being present. And so often those words and those concepts are used in such a, a superficial way. And when being in the present moment is placed upon the uh, pedestal, idealized to that extreme, often we find ourselves struggling with past and future because we feel that there's something to get rid of. They stop us from being in the present moment. And surely if we were in the present moment, we would have no past and we would have no future. We would just be right here. 
So often we learn to regard them as enemies. And you hear also all these spiritual concepts about dying to the past. You know, you've all heard it, dying to the past. And erasing personal history is another one that seems tremendously attractive and somehow is accepted as being part of meditation. And we may very well regard our own past as being a burden which prevents us from being present because we see the conscious and the unconscious intrusion of tendencies and conditioning from the past. And so we find often ourselves in this place of struggle with the past. At times we may find ourselves joining the kind of anti-memory club, you know, whose sole mission and sole object is to erase personal history. And yet often in that desire to erase personal history, what is often being sought for is a very conditional erasure. Often we want to be very willing and happy and more than glad to think of erasing aspects of our personal history that we don't find particularly attractive or enhancing. Certainly we would like to get rid of those memories that we regret or feel guilt over or feel remorse over, those experiences we had where we feel that we blew it, those times where we feel that we just fell apart. Everyone would be very happy to package them all up somehow and get rid of them. We don't necessarily have the same gladness when we think about erasing experiences in the past which are particularly enhancing. You know, those moments when we felt very positive about ourselves, felt very positive about achievements, very positive about changes we've made or things that we've done. And often that attempt to erase personal history is much more an attempt to polish and to refine personal history to have a more attractive past. Because in a very real way, we see an attractive past as being another form of credential, another form of qualification, which is enhancing inwardly. It is difficult for us to conceive of having no personal history. It's difficult for us to conceive of a way of being in this moment where we no longer define our experience of this moment by previous experience, a way of being where in this moment we no longer define ourselves by our ways of experiencing ourselves in the past, where we no longer define ourselves by tendencies, by patterns, by images, and by memories. We use, it's difficult for us to imagine a way of being in this moment where the reference point is not the past. We do need to have a clear relationship to the past. We don't need to erase the past. We don't need to negate the past. We need a clear relationship to the past. But a clear relationship to the past is a relationship which is not marked by clinging. At times we look upon the past and we see that it's a burden to us. We see that we've been hurt or we've been wounded and we're carrying those scars. And we feel we need to resolve past experience. 
And so often when we feel we need to resolve past experience is what we do is we isolate particulars in our past, particular experiences, particular memories, particular areas of pain. And we feel that we want to purge ourselves of, of those traumas. Might be experiences of failure, it might be experiences of rejection, it might be experiences of loss or disappointment. And we feel that we need to purge ourselves of those memories, of those experiences, because somehow they keep repeating themselves again and again in the present. Yet so often when we tend to look upon those experiences with the intention of purging them from our being, our very way of focusing upon them is colored by the pain and the trauma that is associated with those memories. So instead of them being released, we find themselves instead being repeated again and again and again. We find ourselves dwelling upon them. And in dwelling upon them, too often we find ourselves experiencing exactly the same pain or exactly the same fear. And at times it feels like there's no end to our past. There's no end to the influence of our past experience of pain in the past. It is not the memories that need changing. It's not the experiences that need erasing. It's not the images from the past that need purging. What truly needs to undergo transformation is our very relationship to them, is our way of seeing the past, our way of being with the past. And the way, the transformation that is needed is the cessation of clinging, is a way of being able to be with the past in which we no longer define ourselves by it. Continuity of clinging gives life to the past. It is not memory itself. It is not experience itself which has the power to perpetuate pain. What really has the power to perpetuate pain is the continuity of clinging to what has already gone by. This moment we're experiencing now is our next moment's personal history. That is so essential for us to see. This very moment we're experiencing now is our next moment's personal history. Our way of being with ourselves in this moment influences the way we will be with ourselves in the next moment. Our very way of relating to our own inner experience in this moment creates our next moment's personal history. Where can there be transformation? Can there be a cessation to creating personal history which is damaged and wounded. And surely that cessation of creating that quality of personal history which is no longer, which is damaged and wounded, the cessation of that comes in our clarity and our sensitivity and our wisdom in being with ourselves in this moment. Surely we can see that that clarity and that wisdom and that sensitivity breaks down the process of continuity. It breaks down the process of accumulation. It breaks down 
the process of creating burdens in the moment which we carry into the next moment as part of our personal history. Our practice in this moment is not to get rid of the past. It is not to erase history. Our practice in this moment is to cultivate such a sensitive, such an acute, such an alive quality of awareness and insight that has the power to penetrate the tendency to cling. Cultivate a quality of awareness which is so vital and so alive that the tendency to cling and to hold on to things in this moment is dissolved. To resist what has gone by because of aversion. To hold on to what has gone by because of the pleasure it offers us creates in that very resistance and in the very holding a personal history which we can carry into the next moment. And the importance of this practice, the significance of this practice is that we no longer have to be or have to bear the burden of personal history. We no longer have to be limited and defined by personal history because we have the gift of awareness and we have the power of transformation because we have the gift of awareness. Which means that freedom, the cessation of clinging, is not a good idea that belongs to somebody else. It's not an attractive concept that seems to be the territory of those who live in hermitages in Thailand or India. Freedom and enlightenment is the heritage and the birthright and the essence of each one of us. And it is accessible to each one of us because we have the gift of awareness. And it is so important that we can connect in our practice in that way that we are not concerned with self-improvement, that our practice expands our consciousness in such a way in which we can accommodate the personal and we can understand a level of clarity inwardly where there's a cessation of clinging. And our consciousness also expands far beyond the boundaries of the personal, that there is a universal oneness, there is a universal reality, there is a cosmic level, a mystical insight into the unconditioned nature of reality, which is the heritage of each of us. It's so easy in our practice to lose sight of that because we get lost in things and we get contracted in things and we learn to be gentle in our practice. We learn not to judge those times of being lost. We learn not to judge those times of contraction. And by learning not to judge and learning not to condemn those times of contraction, we do find a softness comes inwardly and we can accommodate and we can hold so many aspects of our inner experience. And it's not and that softening inwardly. There is opening and the consciousness goes through such change. And we begin to sense that our possibilities in this practice are not limited just to becoming calmer, becoming more detached, becoming more manageable in our lives. The possibilities of ourselves in this practice is freedom. It's true liberation, is true awakening. 
Meditation empowers us. It empowers us inwardly to heal also. Times we carry so many wounded visions from the past and we feel that they will never be healed and we see ourselves enacting those wounded visions and those damaged visions again and again in our lives in our defensiveness and our resistance and our self-consciousness and at times it's just painful to see how visible those wounded visions are but our practice empowers us it empowers us on one level to see that truly no growth is born of scar tissue that no growth is born of scar tissue and when we can begin to understand that we can begin to feel a softening in that degree of dwelling we can be willing to let the past be not to negate it because we need to learn from the past we need to learn from the past so that we no longer have to repeat it in our lives if we can't learn from the past then we are endlessly bound to repeating it and repeating it and repeating it and repeating the same pains and the same mistakes and the same limitations so we're not going to erase the past we're not going to neutralize it we're going to be cooperative in our learning relationship with it and in that inner cooperativeness and that accommodation those wounded visions can heal we can let the past be we no longer need to define ourselves by it we can come then we find into this moment this present moment and experience it in a way which is not being conditioned and molded by past experience we can come into this moment in which in a way in which the past is not distorting or being our experience of the moment nor being superimposed upon a, upon it we no longer define ourselves in terms of i was and i used to be so now i am this we learn just a different dimension of what it means just to be just as we see ourselves defining ourselves by the past we also see ourselves moving towards the future with the same desire for self-definition in fact getting rid of the past is in some ways seen as being a way of ensuring a brighter future and certainly we can see this movement of self within ourselves wants security in the future and again it seeks a security through definition and through clinging in onto the possibilities of the future being in the present moment also doesn't mean paralysis that thoughts of future never arise that never a plan can be made that never a direction can be formulated being in the present moment doesn't mean that level of paralysis if that's what being in the present moment needs means then all that we actually require in our lives is a kind of mobile zafal being in the present moment means that thoughts of the future will arise but somehow in that diminishing and minimizing of clinging we find that those thoughts of future can arise without the need to invest in them 
because the need to invest in them, the demand for guarantees, the demand for success, the demand for security is so much tied in with our need for self-definition. And we can let the future unfold. We can direct our lives. And particularly for women, this is so important, being able to have that sense of directedness, that sense of how to make ourselves visible in the world. And yet we are never, ever disconnected from that quality of seeing inwardly, the silence inwardly, which is the silence of not clinging. And we come back to the present moment, and we see how self-definition is sought, not just through past and not just through future. We see at times and experience very clearly in our practice the frantic searching of self for self-definition in this moment through our bodies, through our thoughts, through our emotions, through our experience, so often, we how often those concepts move through our mind of I am. I am happy, I am sad, I am exhilarated, I am depressed, I am despairing, I am overjoyed, I am peaceful, I am unpeaceful. And how often we hold on to experience as a way of securing ourselves in the present. And how in the practice, as we see that so much of that begins to dissolve and not seem quite so substantial, how often fear arises. If all of this begins to seem so, so insubstantial, who am I? Where am I? Who am I truly? And often in that, that sense of I then seeks for self-definition in the scene. Well, at least I'm aware. If nothing else, at least I'm aware. I may not be this and I may not be that, but at least I'm aware. And how in moments of stillness in the meditation, you can see how that anxiety arises. Because how often is a moment of stillness followed almost immediately by the voice that says, Oh good, I'm still. <laughs> and how that very, you can see that very movement of grasping and that very movement of clinging, trying to attach itself to experience. In the practice, we find things do fall away very organically not through forcing and not through willpower, just by being present with our inner experience, just by soft, just by being clear, just by being awake, that comes inside. It has its own development. It is organic. You know, you don't have to um, force it. And in fact, you can't force it even to, even to develop. It, it, the development of insight is, is almost like a flower opening in nature. You know that if you try and force a flower, how it's destroyed by that foreseeing. And similarly in our practice, the insight is organic. It opens and it unfolds. It opens and it unfolds as our very awareness deepens. And we begin to see so much insubstantiality and so much transparency. And we begin to really experience that, that letting go and that insubstantiality and that transparency, it is not nothingness. It is not nothingness. That there's a pure silence and a pure stillness and a pure awareness in that, in, that, in that scene which is so deep and so rich and so rich and so vital. And it's not as if it's any way unfamiliar to us. We feel to be no stranger to that scene. No stranger to that stillness and no stranger to that silence. 
And we discover too that it's very difficult to find I in silence. It cannot be found in anywhere and there's no sense of being threatened by that. We begin to see that there is truly no center. But in that seeing that there is truly no center, we also see that there is no division and there is no separation and there is no duality. And even all of our feelings of disconnection, our feelings of separation, our feelings of alienation, were totally related to holding on to that center. And as the center dissolves, so does the separation. And in that oneness that is experienced inwardly, there's an authentic vision of oneness and bonding and connectedness with all of life which is so empowering, which is the source of compassion, which is the source of love, which empowers us to move in this world in a way of compassion, in a way of freedom. In that stillness, the divisions between inner and outer, they simply dissolve. The divisions between I and you simply dissolve. That aloneness is also no different than connectedness. That aloneness is also no different than oneness. Knowing the fulfillment of that aloneness is no different than knowing the fulfillment of a deep sense of connectedness. May all beings experience the richness of aloneness. May all beings know the richness of connectedness. May all beings abide in oneness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.